is the fortune of all womankind. She's always controlled. The women's liberation movement will not disappear after the singing, marching, and shouting have died down. Man himself may not be the enemy, but his practices are under attack, whether they are motivated by prejudice, profit, or habit. This is a search for equality of opportunity, not the wish to be just like men. It is the desire for more options, for choice, for a shattering of stereotypes, for women to choose more freely the kinds of lives they want to live, and if we choose to work, to be paid in full. The status quo is being challenged by the women's liberation movement. Today, it's still a man's world. And just look at it. Move over, gentlemen. Maybe you can use some help. This is Marlene Sanders. That was the conclusion to a 20-minute 1970 ABC News feature about the women's liberation movement. Marlene Sanders, a legendary woman journalist and Emmy Award-winning correspondent, produced and reported it. Sanders began her career in an entry-level job in 1955 at WNEW-TV in New York, and she worked her way up to become the producer of the show, an almost unprecedented achievement for a woman in television then. After that, Sanders broke barrier after barrier. She was the first woman to cover the Vietnam War on the ground, co-anchor a national nightly news show, and become a vice president in the ABC News division. Unsurprisingly, Sanders was well-connected in New York's small but thriving women's liberation community. The feature included an interview with Betty Friedan, the author of the 1963 bestseller The Feminine Mystique, and one of the founders, along with luminaries like Pauli Murray, Eileen Fernandez, and Shirley Chisholm, of the National Organization for Women, known as NOW. Although NOW had radical goals, the organization sat firmly in the tradition of American liberalism, seeking to reform the system, not overthrow it, and to do so through politics, legal action, and the occasional peaceful protest. NOW wanted equality, not revolution. But Sanders also included footage of women who wanted a wholesale re-envisioning of the social order. They were radical feminists like Susan Brownmiller, who Sanders knew from the New York movement and journalism circles, and activists in places like Chapel Hill, North Carolina. There, radical feminists, mostly students and wives of students, were upending traditional gender roles, parenting, marriage, and sex, and laying the groundwork for an academic field called women's studies. Radical feminist organizations were often short-lived, beginning as conversation or rap groups among women whose politics and sense of grievance had been formed in the black civil rights and anti-war movements. These movements had taught them the pervasiveness of racism in American society, so they invented a word that expressed the potential for women's class consciousness, sexism, and they adapted another name from the old left for their process. They called it consciousness raising. Revolutionary feminists often came from a Marxist background. Like many on the New Left, some were the children of communists, so-called red diaper babies. Others were neighborhood organizers, college graduates who had ended up at home with children or in jobs where they couldn't be promoted any higher than secretary or wife. They wanted egalitarian relationships with men, but that was only a starting place, if an important one, for the heterosexually inclined. Unlike now, they organized speakouts, demonstrations, and sit-ins, 
making demands that liberal professional women often saw as too confrontational and alienating to men. Universal child care, an end to mindless booby girl syndrome promoted by capitalist enterprises like the Miss America pageant, Playboy magazine, and yes, the housewife's friend, the Ladies' Home Journal. These groups named themselves after radical women like Emma Goldman, angry Greek goddesses and demigoddesses, names that catapulted radical feminists onto the front lines of a social revolution and a new society. New York radical feminists broke into brigades anchored in neighborhoods. Another group adopted the name Red Stockings. The Jane Collective came together in Chicago to steer women to safe, affordable abortion providers. Eventually, they taught each other to perform the procedure themselves. In Washington, D.C., one of many lesbian separatist groups called themselves the Furies. Heterosexuality, along with private property, they argued, was an impediment to a women's revolution. Of course, only a fraction of the stories about radical feminism have been told. One of those untold stories may even be in your city or town. And a story that has never been told until now is of the revolutionary feminist community in Seattle. In this city, white women and women of color worked successfully in coalition with each other and with neighborhood organizers. Activists made it a priority to support unions, and selective use of the political process resulted in the first successful ballot referendum to decriminalize abortion. This is why I wanted to talk to Barbara Winslow, Professor Emerita of Women's and Gender Studies at Brooklyn College. Winslow's new book, Revolutionary Feminists, The Women's Liberation Movement in Seattle, just out from Duke University Press, tells the story of feminists who were not only at the forefront of a women's revolution, but who saw their anti-racist, anti-imperialist, class-conscious organizing as the natural outcome of that city's radical past. They were Marxists, Maoists, Trotskyists, Socialists, Black Panthers, farm workers organizers, and members of SDS, but together they imagined a non-sectarian feminist revolution in a city they only semi-facetiously thought of as the Soviet of Washington. And as early as 1965, earlier in fact than the founding of many more famous women's liberation groups, Seattle women began to find each other and organize, and Barbara Winslow was one of them. Join Barbara and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, Professor of History Emeritus at the New School for Social Research, a contributing editor at Public Seminar, and the author of The Political Junkie Substack. This is Episode 33, Seattle, the Feminist Soviet of Washington. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited about this. Well, I'm very excited about a new book about the radical feminist movement in Seattle. I wonder if you could just begin by telling us the story listeners can learn from this book. There are a number of stories. First of all, nothing is known about Seattle, Washington. I was at a history conference. And people were talking about the liberalization of abortion laws, and they mentioned New York, and they mentioned California. And I had to heckle and go, excuse me, Washington State had the first 
popular referendum to liberalize abortion, the only one until 60 years later. And it was basically organized. And the foot soldiers of that movement were from the, you call it radical feminists. I call my book revolutionary feminists. But we on the left were able to mobilize a mass movement to support abortion rights, and no one knows about it. So hopefully now people will. Left feminists, I also call the radical feminists left feminists. I would say the things that we accomplished, whether it was the rape crisis uh, centers, battered women's shelters, women's studies program, organizing working women, both at the University of Washington, which is in Seattle, and at other places, was begun by radical feminists. We had the first teach-in that dealt with women and sports in 1971, before Billie Jean King founded the Women's Sports Foundation. So a lot of what we did has to be written about and talked about and remembered. And I would bet if other people started looking at their own local community, their city, their county, their state's history, they would find stories like mine. They also would find which... I think is equally important, the role of women of color in the struggle for feminism. And there's a longstanding misogynist myth that the women's liberation movement was all white, and it wasn't. And in Seattle, a city that was 94% white, the first three women's liberation groups were more racially diverse than all the mixed groups whether they were anti-war, environmental, student, and young people's rights. And, you know, you are alluding to something that I really loved about this book, which is it's a study of one community. And, of course, when you and I were starting off in history, the community study was sort of the basis of the social history movement, and people really stopped writing them. And your work on Seattle really reminds me why that work was so important. But there's another aspect of this too, Barbara, which I just want to plunge right in with. You were part of that movement. What was it like to write about a movement that you were so passionately invested in as a young person? Well, I will say the first 10 years, it was very difficult because there is a long misogynist, as I've said, myth about the women's liberation movement. And when I would give talks or people would ask me, what was my research? And I would say, I'm writing about the women's liberation movement in Seattle. And and to a person, they would say, well, I hope you write about how racist it was. I had to deal with that. I had to, to try to figure it out. And I, over time, came to the conclusion that I think the misogyny, and I'll just say on the left, because we expect misogyny on the right, came from a very ambivalent idea about the importance of gender, that it's okay for women to fight for peace, to struggle for the environment, to be allies in the uh, Black freedom struggle. But when women begin to organize for themselves, whether it's abortion rights, rape, and so forth, We get accused of being divisive, of selfish. And of course, the most damning one was that we were all white and we were all racist. So I had to struggle with that. And over time, more of my colleagues, my allies in the feminist movement, many of whom are women of color, 
began to have a much more sophisticated, nuanced understanding about what the feminist movement was all about, because they begin to discover the role of women of color as well. So at first it was difficult. And then the other thing that just amazed me was A, as I've said, the role of women of color. I knew one woman well who was very active in Seattle radical women. One of the women in our group was very active in in the language of the times, the Chicano, today we'd say Latinx, but the Chicano movement. And to interview them and to hear their stories about other struggles they were involved in, I just had no idea. And the other embarrassing thing, at least for me, was I sort of found myself in newspaper accounts far more often than I even remembered. And a lot of the the things that I thought happened didn't, or it happened in a different way. So it was very challenging and very exciting. And by the time I finished the manuscript, I had a real good time writing it. And this book really sort of jumps out as both a labor of love and a highly professional history. When you were enmeshed in writing it and struggling with with some of these issues about race, there was a picture that jumped out of those newspaper clippings of you, you know, really giving somebody in the crowd hell. And it was a black man. And you said you didn't remember that at all, but you looked at the picture and it really raised a lot of feelings about that time. Can you talk about that picture a little bit? Since I can't show the picture and you'll just have to buy the book, it's a photograph of me speaking at what was called Open Forum, and I'm highlighted. And one other person is highlighted, and it's an African-American man. I'm assuming it's a man, but it does look like one. Everybody else is shaded. Whoever wrote it, and the person has an androgynous name, went on and on about how this fiery exchange between me and this African-American man went on for two hours. It was the fieriest exchange they could ever remember and so forth. This just struck me because it's a classic divide and rule ploy of black men versus white women, whether it's Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Frederick Douglass or Hillary and Obama, it just goes on and on. I remember a lot of things of what happened. I have no idea about what happened at that open forum, although I did speak a lot. I think I would remember a two and a half hour fire exchange with an African-American man. If you look at the shaded pictures It's mainly white men lounging on the grass, smoking cigarettes, sleeping, smoking joints. It just struck me so, so that why did the University of Washington Daily publish this picture? Why did they write the story they did? And I read every issue of the University of Washington Daily, which was the daily newspaper that came out of the UW. And there was no story for 10 years from 65 to 75 that resembled that story. So you're right. It really uh, struck me. And you, uh, But anyway, that picture also forced me to think about me and issues of race. Your listeners can't see me, so I am white. And I forced myself to think about white supremacy in terms of my life, my education, my rearing, the things we did at the University of Washington when most of us who were left wing women who were white, we saw ourselves as allies. We saw ourselves as anti-racist. But when I went and looked at so much of the documentation and how we ignored women of color, 
it blew my mind. And we were the best that there were. So it really forced me to think about the institution of white supremacy as opposed to one's individual actions. Yes. And there's, there's a very compelling afterward in which you discuss these thoughts that you had and reflect on that time that I would really recommend to listeners in terms of evaluating their own political participation and the questions they could ask themselves about their own lives. I want to sort of kick it back to the emergence of revolutionary feminism in Seattle. And I think one of the points you make very well is that Seattle was a very special place when it came to left-wing politics. It was a kind of cauldron of radicalism. Could you describe the history of Seattle and why it produced a different kind of revolutionary feminism than other cities? Washington State had a long history of radicalism. The industrial workers of the world were very active. The Washington State Socialist Party was very left-wing. In fact, that was my master's dissertation, which I hope nobody ever reads, but it still was about the left-wing of the party. There was a very strong women's movement. There was a movement of, for setting up communes. And in fact, Eugene Debs wrote to uh, John D. Rockefeller asking for money. Would he please help support the funding of these left-wing communes? Rockefeller declined. People like Emma Goldman came out and spoke all the time. So it had that famous history of radicalism. Then there was the famous Seattle general strike of 1919, where I think it was five days, the city was shut down. And one of the leaders of the strike was Anna Louise Strong, who began as a progressive feminist and ended up being a Maoist and lived in China. In fact, one of the women's liberation groups in Seattle was called the Anna Louise Strong Brigade. In the 30s, the Communist Party was very strong and very big. And I think the famous story goes in 1947, James J. Farley, who was Franklin Roosevelt's postmaster general, did a toast to the 47 states uh, and the Soviet of Washington. Seattle became a very important shipping center. It soon uh, surpassed uh, San Francisco. So at the time that the left was reemerging after McCarthyism, Seattle was sort of a complicated city. As I said, it was 94% white. The dominant industry was the Boeing Corporation and Weyerhaeuser. So there was this Cold War ethos, but there also was sort of a very libertarian streak. So that's one of the things that made it unique, I think, or distinctive. I don't know, I would say unique, I'd say distinctive. And there may be a lot of cities like Seattle, and I hope people will do some research on their towns and communities. It also was distinctive in that the racial composition, while 94% white, it was not binary. There were an equal number of African-Americans, Latinx, indigenous, AAPI, and of course, 8,000, I think it was 8,000 Japanese had been forcibly relocated to camps in Idaho and never came back. So it would have had a larger Asian population. So I think that's one of the things that made it distinctive. The other thing I think that added was the University of Washington was the second largest employer in both Washington State and in Seattle, Washington. And those of us who were either professors, students, I was a student, 
or staff who were active in radical politics, we looked at the university as a factory, as a place of employment, much less than a ivory tower. So we had a lot of activities at the university because it could be a laboratory for future activities. I think you made that case so very well, Barbara, that I just want to shout out to the young historians out there that too much of the story of radical feminism has been told as this kind of national story that's anchored by Chicago and New York and Boston. And that really you have to look at what a particular place produced, what was already in place that that made radical feminism happen. And one of the things that I learned from your book is that by the time revolutionary feminism, as you call it, is emerging, there is a whole map that I'm not even going to try to reproduce of radical groups that are variously Marxist, Maoist, Leninist, Trotskyite, and they're all sort of jockeying with each other and women are coming out of those movements. Can you talk about how that enriched or made difficult the emergence of radical feminism in Seattle? I would be good by saying that the left-wing groups, and I use the word Trotskyist, not Trotskyite, because that's a pejorative, but the existence of the first three groups would not have happened if it weren't for Trotskyist activists. And there is one person I'm going to mention. Her name was um, Clara Fraser, and she was a remarkable woman. She was Jewish. She was a Trotskyist and a woman, and she had an engineering job at Boeing. She was very active in the 1948 Boeing general strike, which Teamster leader Dave Beck tried to break. When they had an injunction against the strikers, Clara organized a stroller brigade, got all the moms, the mothers, whether they were working mothers or wives and mothers of the men who were working, and the Stroller Brigade, which is very much what people may see in the wonderful movie um, Salt of the Earth, how the women come out. But Clara did that. And she loses her job and she gets blacklisted. She finally finds a poverty program job in this, uh, uh, the Central District, which was the African-American District of Seattle. And she played a pivotal role in founding Seattle Radical Women, which was the first group which was founded in October 1967. And the other political groups, the Communist Party does not support feminist groups until way late in the 70s. The Socialist Workers Party comes in late in 71. So it's mainly Trotskyist groups. And then in 69 and 70, they're not Maoist organizations, but women who were very sympathetic to Maoism founded the Anna Louise Strong Brigade, the Fan Chen women, and other types of groups. They were the ones who did it. And I say that in the, in the late 60s, 67, when Clara and her group founded Radical Women, it was very gutsy because Washington State was just emerging from their own state McCarthyism. And I wasn't in a group then, but we all were outspoken. We were anti-racist. We were anti-imperialist. We called ourselves socialists. We called ourselves revolutionaries. We called ourselves Marxism. And pundits be damned, so to speak. We were just going to go ahead and be proud of who we were and what we were. And I want to say I think this is very important 
because a lot of the history of the new left, and in particular, some of the women's activities, which are wonderful, many of the leading activists claim no connection with the left. And I remember, because I went to college with Julie Reichardt, and we were good friends, in her wonderful movie, Union Maids, you know, she had, I think it's Stella Kowalski speaking. She was in the Communist Party, but she pretended she wasn't. And when Julia asked her in the movie, well, how did you deal with the red baiting? She said, well, I always just said, if organizing women is what communism was all about, then I'm a communist. And I do think that for all my intense criticisms of Trotskyists, Maoists, and communists, they also played very positive and progressive roles in many cases. And that should also be explored. Yeah. And one of the big themes of your book is that while we've often thought of radical feminism coming out of the new left, and that was really sort of established by Sarah Evans' wonderful book that she wrote about her involvement with the new left, really revolutionary feminism comes out of this mix of old left, new left, and woman of color community activism. And it's it's this hybrid thing. So can you talk a little bit about the significance of this finding in relation to other books about radical feminism, books that our listeners may already know? I think Sarah Evans's book is very important, but she does make the connection with the old left because many of the white activists and some of the African-American activists in the South were red diaper babies, their parents were lefties and so forth. And that is what was part of the continuity. I think that uh, recent scholarship, I could just name 80, (laughs) they're all in my bibliography, about women in the welfare rights movement and trade union women organizing. And you know, there was a very important strike in 1969 in South Carolina of healthcare workers. And the person that, who was invited to speak, I think it was 1199, was Martin Luther King. And these were all Black women who organized it. And so I think there has always been the tradition of militancy, the tradition of struggle. And the issue for, for example, us in Seattle was how could we be in coalitions with the women from welfare rights, with the women from the great boycott, with the women from, and it was that was the language of the time, Indian fishing rights, because it would not be accurate to say that the groups were totally as diverse as we would like them to be today. But still, we were able to be involved in meaningful coalitions. And I think we learned a lot of this from some of our older sisters who had been in the struggles in the 40s and 50s. I'm glad you mentioned, Barbara, the question of groups being as diverse as as we would like them to be today. But actually, feminism isn't as diverse as we would like it to be. And, And I wonder whether you see some sort of continuing problems, continuing themes in which white women organize in their own way and women of color are organizing over there and coalitions are created, but the actual integration of political groups is rarer than we might like. What are the dynamics that have stuck with us? What have we not actually conquered here? I think I taught at Medgrover's College for five years. There were 200 faculty 
five of us were white. And I had to learn to listen because I think it is very difficult for white people to listen to people who have been more marginalized or who are in the minority. I mean, maybe it was just my experience, but I'm friends with another scholar named Eileen Boris, who I know you know, she taught at Howard, and she said the same thing. When you're not in the majority, you have to listen. And I think that's the first step. I'm a little more optimistic about the alliances and the coalitions because, I mean, I have to say the Black Lives Matter struggles, the struggles for to save the planet, even sections of the Me Too movement have been far more racially mixed. You know, when you have demonstrations led by LGBTQIA persons of color, that was never my experience. So I I think there can be the changes. And I just think that more and more women of color and the LGBTQIA community are saying, we're going to lead this struggle. And some of you white women are just going to have to learn to listen to us for a change. But, you know, one of the things you discuss in the book is that the kind of lesbian straight split that we see in other radical feminist groups around the country doesn't happen in Seattle. No, it didn't. So why is that? Well, three members of Women's Liberation Seattle came out before Stonewall. And I've interviewed all three of them. And all three say there was such sisterhood in the groups that it didn't matter. And Seattle also has probably a more progressive history toward LGBTQIA than maybe some Midwestern cities. You know, I've read about San Francisco and New York and a little bit about New Orleans, but port cities, and Seattle was a port city, you tend to have a larger, and now I'm using the language of the 60s, lesbian and gay community. I tell one story in the book when which shows the alliance. Um, Betty Friedan came out to Seattle in 1971, I think it was. And she just was appalling in many respects. She already was out denouncing the presence of lesbians. And now she showed up, she demanded a huge honorarium. She wore a mink coat, which, you know, for us activists, that was sort of terrible. And out of this one Colleague, scholar, sister, activist, Mary Rothschild, a name you may know, she was teaching the introduction to women's studies. And it was her students that said, we want to have a demonstration opposing Friedan's homophobia. And there was a big demonstration where straight women and lesbians, we were out, we confronted her. And it was something that didn't happen in a lot of places. So yes, there was that sense of community. I will say, unlike many other cities, for a long time, the lesbian and gay movement was was white. But the initial lesbian and gay movement, again, language of the 60s and 70s, was also very left-wing. It was was left-wing. It came out of the anti-war movement, came out of left women's liberation. So I think, once again, the Marxists, the Leninists, the Maoist groups, the Trotskyist group all have a very complicated homophobic history. Yet, once again, they became activists in an extraordinarily important struggle. You know, I found that so interesting because I've had Bettina Apthecker on the podcast. And of course, she's written 
a book about lesbians and gays in the Communist Party. And it really struck me that Seattle's leftists were so much more independent and were less bound by the party's dictates. I think the Communist Party was far more afraid of homosexuality than even the Trotskyist groups, just because they faced the bulk of the repression. And you know that there are two very famous historians, no, well, one's a historian, one was an activist, who had been in or around the Communist Party who refused to admit it until almost their dying breath. So I think the history of the Communist Party was very traumatic, for, for especially for women. Absolutely. Well, and of course, one of the points Bettina makes is that if, in fact, you came out as lesbian or gay, you would be expelled from the party. Your your whole life was gone. So we're seeing a different kind of left community formation in Seattle. And one of the things that I was fascinated by is that despite these very different roots, despite the very different energy that we're seeing in other cities, Still, Seattle's radical feminist community kind of dissipates after 1973. To what would you attribute the dissolution of that movement? The left was defeated beginning in 68. We look at 1968 as the year of Tet and Mexico and France and all that, but we forget Nixon got elected. And the first assault was on the Black freedom struggle. Panthers were murdered, were set up for trial, and I do believe the Black struggle is the backbone, is the spinal column of American politics, and with the defeat of the Black movement came other defeats. So that was one part of it. The growing right-wing assault and the neoliberal assault, you know, we paid the price for that. Plus, a lot of us got older. And it's hard to go to meetings six days a week. Some of us graduated. We had to get jobs. It's hard to hold down a job. It's hard to have kids. It's hard to do that. And our level of activism, I was at a meeting probably two, three times every day for three years. I mean, you can't continue that way forever, or I couldn't. And I think a lot of us couldn't. There's only one group that still exists, and that's Radical Women, because it is connected with the Freedom Socialist Party, a sectarian Trotskyist group. And I think that is the reason for its existence. Something else happened, too, that is now doesn't get organized in Seattle until 1970, three years after our groups were formed. But I think with the collapse of the left, then these national organizations, whether it was NOW, the Coalition of Labor Union Women, the National Abortion Rights Action League, they step in. And I think people are now realizing it 50, 60 years too late, that by abandoning the local struggles and giving everything up to either the Democratic Party, you know, these national groups, we lost a lot of our strength and our staying power. And I think it was a mis- we look back, it was a mistake then. And hopefully younger activists will not make that mistake again. I think at this moment in time, the struggle over the local, whether it's getting on your local school board or organizing a union or, you know, what have you, I think that should be our focus. And I wish it continued to be our focus. I think we would have been stronger, but the national organizations just sucked all the oxygen out of what was left. It's something that I've really 
seen in my own research is the anti-institutionalism that is inherent to radical politics means actually those groups have difficulty reproducing themselves in any way. The liberal groups that do institutionalize can reproduce themselves because they have a structure to do that and they have money to do that and and so on. And, and I certainly take your point about returning to the local. I think post-Dobbs, we've seen the cost of abandoning the local because there were all of these zombie laws, abortion laws that got reactivated. And, you know, people had just sort of walked away from them and said, all right, that doesn't matter anymore. The court dealt with that. So Barbara, bringing us up to the present, why should our listeners read this book now? Because I think we're in, it doesn't matter if it's feminists or however you see yourself, we're in a period of revanchism. I hope that the book can provide a model for organizing in terms of what can possibly be done. You mentioned post-Dodd. When we were struggling for the abortion referendum, we did not rely on the courts, any of the courts. We did not rely on our elected officials, even though most of them were sympathetic. You know, the old chant, not the church, not the state. We was not the courts, not the Congress, not anything. We relied on our own ability to organize. And I think that is something, hopefully, that readers can take out of it. We also had a lot of fun when we were doing our things. Our newsletter was 10 cents for women, 15 cents for men until there was equal pay. And men would have arguments with us about it. It was so much fun to sell our newsletter. We would hand out leaflets only to women and the men would take them and we would take it back and we would no, this is for if they were in a couple. And you could see the couples are then fighting afterwards. We protested against wet t-shirt contests, excuse me, but we did it from the point of view that the women should control the workplace and they should dictate what they're going to wear as opposed to just saying it was exploitative. The protests that I write about in my book and in other memoirs against the playmate. I mean, on the one hand, it was a lot of fun to do because we spoke for the first time. So we had clever signs, we had clever buttons. So I think hopefully that shows some examples of what you can do to be effective and to have fun. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or to leave a comment. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And follow me on Twitter at Tenured Radical, that's capital T, capital R, or at my website, clairepotter.com. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time.